17, you don't think that much about life, you just live it. The kerosene dancing around the fire, but you're in it. So you jump right in, ain't afraid to fall, and you give it up. She got the best of me. You got the best of me. I pick myself up off the floor, find something more worth living for. In a old dusty hand me down six strings and a couple chords hitting over her. A little more with every song, so y'all sing along. She got the best of me. the song was about a girl who broke a guy's heart and got the best of him, all that sort of thing. But I want to tell you, there is a lot of truth in that song. Because there are a lot of things that come along into your life that get the best of you, that leave the rest of you short for things that are important. And I see this in marriage all the time. I watch people give themselves to sometimes friendships. They give themselves to work. Maybe they give themselves to their kids or a hobby. They give the best of themselves to that. And what's left for their spouse is a little side thing that they have. And it causes all kinds of damage and problems. And um, it, it also does this with what I think is the most important resource that you have for your marriage. So I think sometimes that resource gets the least of us. 
when it should get the best of us and result in all kinds of benefits to our relationship. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I, I think today is the crown jewel of the whole series. We've been talking about really important things along the path. Don't get me wrong. But if you miss this, if you miss today, then all the rest of the work that you might do might be of no value to you. And if you give yourself to the wrong things, you could end up disappointed. So I, that's where I want to take you this morning. And we're going to go there the long way. This is going to be one of those mornings. If you've been at Waypoint a long time, you understand what I'm about to say. You won't freak out. The, the rest of you who have been, haven't been here very long, just let me explain. I'm about to start in left field. And I'm going to stay there for a while. So long, in fact, that you may start wondering what this has to do with the marriage series, if I'm ever going to get around to making a point, and where this is going. If you have any of those thoughts, just be reassured we're in the right place, all right? If you're thinking that, we're doing the right thing. And eventually, we'll get around, and it will make sense. That's the goal, all right? So we're going to start in Genesis. I can't, by the way, just a little preview, I cannot wait for the Genesis series that we're going to do in January and February of next year. I'm going to really mess with your heads because mine's being messed with as I prepare for this. It's going to be awesome. You should be around for that. But we're going to go to Genesis 15, and we're going to give you a little preview of what that might look like. In Genesis 15, Abram and God are having a conversation. His name has not yet been changed to Abraham, but God has made a promise to Abram. I'm going to make great nations out of you. And Abram believed him and had staked his life. He had done some pretty bold things with this belief in mind. And he gets to a place in his story where he had thought that he understood how God was going to deliver on that promise. And in the chapter before this, the way he thought God would deliver on this promise just walked out of his life for the second time. And there is a crisis happening with Abram. He can't see how God's going to pull this off. He believes him, but he's not sure. Because the path forward isn't clear. God comes to him in a vision and says, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your refuge. It's not enough for Abram. He wants more. So verse 2 records this. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. You can't give me your promise. You can't make me a great nation. I don't have kids. In fact, the person who will get my estate is my chief servant. And if I were to pass right now, everything would roll to him, and my name would be gone, blotted out, done. So please tell me what your plan is. I thought I knew it. I'm not sure anymore what's going on. Verse 3 says, and Abram said, now here's what you need to know. In the Hebrew text, there are ways that they let you in on what's happening without saying exactly what's happening. They just write it that way and expect that you would have some understanding of this. When you find in the text, but Abram said, and then followed by, and Abram said, it's two different conversations. That's what they're trying to tell you. They want you to know these are two different conversations. They've happened some time apart. It could be days. It could be weeks. It could be years. This one could be years. But that he's gone to God. He said this. 
And if the first one was a different conversation, what was God's answer? Silence. God said nothing. And someday we're going to come back here and we're going to talk about maybe why God answered with silence and the value of that. So maybe someday when God answers you with silence, you'll, you'll see the benefit of that. And you'll understand and embrace that. But Abram does not see the benefit. And instead, he's actually going to express a little bit of angst with his next conversation. Second conversation, verse 3. You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Can you compare the two statements? The one starts with sovereign Lord, has a tone of respect in it, names a servant Eleazar. There's a little bit of respect there. The second one, it's an accusation. You've given me no children. I have no heir. I asked you a serious question, and you gave me silence. And I'm looking around, and I'm wondering, how is this going to work out? God, I need an answer. I'm old. Sarai is old. She's barren. We know we can't have kids. If you're going to deliver on your promise to me, please tell me how. He's ticked. Verses 4 through 7, God starts reassuring him. And the scriptures record that Abram says, I believe. His belief was credited to him as righteousness, in fact. But a short time later, it's not enough. And he feels, again, this pressure of not really understanding how God's going to deliver on the process. And so in verse 8, he says this, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? He's back to a level of respect, right? Possession of what? The promise. You promised me a great nation. How can I possess it if I don't even have an heir? How can you give me a kid? I don't see it. I need something from you. I need more than your word. We probably could spend the whole morning on that. Abram looks at God and says, I need more than your word. What can you do for me? Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, if you go and look in the text, you're not going to find a single ounce of instruction as to what he's supposed to do with those. And yet, Abram is about to do something. And it seems like God's okay. It's either, it's either he knows what to do or he's insane because look at what he does. In verse 10, Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. He just ripped their heads off, right? And you're like, ah, Abram's got an angry issue, right? Sure, God, I'll bring you these animals. <laughs> How's that? So it's either that or something else is going on. The only way to figure out what's going on here is to start looking around the cultures of that day. In all the ancient cultures of that day, there happened to be a ceremony that required a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. It was a betrothal covenant. It was a covenant that was made between uh, somebody who was suiting like wanted to marry a daughter, and the father. Now here, let me explain how covenants work. 
You made a covenant in the ancient world when two people were trying to agree on something and one person held more power than the other person. You needed to have an agreement because this person could just kind of step away and not be held accountable for it because they had so much more power. So you would enter into this agreement, but there were some boundaries to it. If you were the weaker party, you acted first. You would have to take some initiative. And uh, you would also be required to actually keep the covenant and to produce the covenant. If it was ever asked for, you bore the primary responsibility. As the weaker party, you would do this. Now, in a betrothal covenant, the father figure had more power because he had the daughter. He had the prize. So he would go second, and the guy would go first. And here's what they would do. Let me put up the picture of how he would arrange this. If you were thinking he just put him flat out on the ground and let him bleed out, that's not what happened. They would put him on a gully like this, each half on each side, and the birds down here, and they would allow the blood to flow together and then to create a blood path. This was called a blood path covenant. And what would happen is the, the two parties, the suitor... And the father would put on long white robes, and the suitor would go first. And he would walk between these pieces down this blood path, stomping. And the blood would splatter up on that white gown that he was wearing. And in essence, he was saying to the dad, if I don't take care of your daughter in an honorable way, you can do this in my blood. And the father would stomp down that path next, saying to the suitor, I will give you a virgin who is also an honorable woman, and if I don't, you can do this in my blood. And they were doing this to say, I'm staking my life on the words that I've given to you. I'll deliver, or it will cost me my life. So when Abram comes to God and says, I need more, I need more than your word, I need more than your words that you've given me, God says, how about a covenant? I'll stake my life on the words that I've spoken. You can count on it. One problem. It's a covenant. It's between two parties, one greater one lesser, who do you imagine holds the lesser position in this arrangement? Abram, right? Who has to go first? Abram, which makes verse 11 very curious. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. How long were the carcasses sitting there before they had to rot and smell that would draw in birds of prey? Quite a while. What's happening? What, what's going on? Uh, Abram understood that God was doing this blood covenant. And he came to his senses and realized that he was a fool. He was about to enter into a covenant with almighty creator of the universe and he was going to be required to keep his side of the commitment or his life would be required. And what Abraham realized 
is that I can't do it. Even for the sake of my family name, for this thing that God would give me right now, I don't think I can do it. I can't keep my commitment to God. I can't keep my commitment to the family. I can't, I can't do this. It would cost me my life. And so he sits out, knowing full well what those animals represented, brought himself to a place where he could prepare it, but he could not have the courage to walk down the center of it. The scriptures record that it gets into the evening and Abram goes to sleep and God comes to him in a vision and in, just in case you were wondering, well, maybe Abram blew this out of proportion. He didn't understand. Maybe this was no big deal. God then talks about him, about what it means to fail your commitments in his vision, that Israel would fail and his ancestors would be taken into slavery for 400 years, but it didn't matter because I would still be faithful to your people. You are going to fail, Abram. It's going to cost you, but I'll still be faithful to you. And then, verse 17, <laughs> downright exciting. Verse 17 happens. I'm, I'm honestly getting a little chills right now. We don't know if God woke him up. We don't know if he had this in the vision, but we know he's about to see something. Look at what verse 17 says. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, please understand that when you read the text, images, metaphors, and pictures are a big deal here. We're not talking just about um, the day going away. Abraham, Abram, sorry, had just decided I think maybe this dream that I have of being a great nation needs to die. Because if I'm required to stake my life on it, I'm done. I'm out. And this great thing that he had in mind was coming to an end and darkness was coming. But then this. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared. What in the world could that represent? Well, if you think about the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, there was a time where they were led by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And, and that was God leading Israel. And so you have this picture, almost everybody who reads this would say, this is God, except it's weird. Because the pillar and the fire weren't together, but here they are. And even more weird, look at what it says in verse 17. And it passed between the pieces. It just walked the blood path. Why? God's the primary suitor. He has all the power. He does not go first. But instead, what we see here in the text is this. Almighty God, who held all power, who did not have to go first, went for Abram and God. He said, listen, I'll keep my word to you, but I'll help you keep your word as well, and I'll stake my life on it, which is exactly what he does, because Abram will fail, and Jesus will someday come and pay a price for that, but right there, right there, it's all right there in the beginning of time. I want you to hear this. This is important. As God planned to partnership with mankind and return creation back to what it was meant to be. He understood that we 
would fail at our commitments. And he decided that I will help. I will help you make your commitments. I'll hold up my end, and I'll help you hold up your end. And I would submit to you this morning that if you want the most important resource in your life, in your marriage, you will invite God into your relationship. A God who will walk alongside you, understand that the commitments that you've made, you're going to have a hard time pulling off. And decide that I'm going to find a way to help you. I'm going to find a way to carry you through this. The reason this doesn't happen, I think, many times is because God does not get the best of us. I think we show up occasionally. We think about him when we're not busy with something else. Or uh, we show up when it's an emergency. God, fix them. They're a pain in the rear. Do something about this person I'm married to. Or fix us. Like we've got ourselves into a pickle. And all along... He wanted to walk alongside you. See, there are consequences. That's clear in the scriptures. There are consequences that happen when we act badly, choose badly, do badly. But all along the path, God shows up with an intention to heal, to encourage, to mend that relationship and to return it to where it was supposed to be. Um, can I just tell you, What I have found in my relationship with Tracy is that inviting God into our relationship has been the best choice and decision that we have ever made that's given us the most stability. And I can tell you how some of the things that we went about doing it. But you would think it would have been natural, right? I'm a follower of Jesus. It's just what we do. But unless you're doing it intentionally, the chances are it's not happening. It's not happening. And so we found ourselves uh, doing this. And I want to give you an example, probably the biggest example of where um, inviting God into our relationship changed everything for us. Marriage researchers have looked at um, couples and they concluded that there are generally, this is wide general, um, two types of conflict that you'll face in your marriage. One is solvable. It's about a very specific thing that you're having a discussion about. Somebody messes up, does something wrong. You complain about it, and it's narrow. You're not bringing up everything else around that. It's just that problem. You did this. I want to talk about this. There's a compromise involved. So he goes, yeah, I did do that. I'm sorry an apology is given, and then everybody's okay. The problem goes out of the relationship, and you're good, no problem. But the second, the second type of problem, the researchers call it unsolvable. Doesn't sound promising, does it? Can I tell you what it feels like? It feels, feels like you're on the episode of Man vs. Wild. You guys seen the show, you know the premise of the show, right? Some guy with not very many marbles up here goes out into the middle of the wilderness and decides to survive on anything he can find. 
including drinking his own pee. I don't know why he does it. It's gross. But I watched him do it. All right? So man versus wild, he's out there trying to survive, and that's exactly what it feels like when you're in these unsolvable situations. You feel like you're alone trying to survive, and it's shocking to you because you thought when you got married it would be us, it would be team, it would be a we. And instead of that, you feel like you're alone, barely surviving, and you don't know how you're going to get through it. And you wonder, what in the world am I doing here? And it starts to become difficult. Here's, here's what the researchers have found about unsolvable conflicts. They're general in nature. It's not just about the problem. When you bring up the problem, you bring up this, 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 this. You throw the kitchen sink at it, right? It's not narrow. It represents something much bigger to you. You might be talking about this, but really it's about a lack of trust or insecurity or some other bigger issue, disrespect that I feel. Here's the problem. Researchers have also found that there's very little compromise that's available in that type of conflict, which is frustrating because you thought when you got married that love would cause that person to compromise everything in order to show you love. And so you've asked for them to compromise. And they're not compromising very much. In fact, they're not changing very much at all. That's because it's an unsolvable situation. And it's so frustrating to you because you feel unloved now. But the researchers say the reason this is so difficult is because there's no solution for you to find. It's not there. So let me give you an example. Let's say your spouse makes you late for something important. You don't criticize them for it. You complain about it. Hey, you know this happened. It made me feel this way. It made me look bad when I got to this place. Is there any way that you can find a way to adjust on that? They compromise and say, hey, I think if I did this, we could leave earlier. Would that be okay? Yes, we can both do this. I'm sorry, apology accepted, it's gone, you never think about it again. It's dreamy, right? But what happens when your spouse makes you late for the 39th time? And you know, as the argument begins, that you know what they're going to say and they know what you're going to say. And the thought in the back of your mind is, what's the point of this? We already know where this is going. But you go there anyway because you're mad. And you start bringing up the 59 times that they made you late before. Right? And they propose a compromise, which you've heard from them before, but you know it's baloney. Because they've tried it before, it will last a week, maybe a week, I don't know, maybe three days. And then they're going to go back on it. And so you don't want to hear a compromise, and you don't even want to hear an apology. You don't want to be late for the 89th time, let's go! Yes, it escalates. You see that? It's exactly how it works. It escalates. And you start to tear each other up because you feel alone. And I'm trying to survive this, and you don't understand me, and I don't get you, and what you have not understood is that the reason these conflicts exist in the relationship 
is because they come from deep-seated differences that you have with each other. We've been talking about them over the last few weeks. These are the fingerprints of God on your life. You have a different personality than they do. You grew up differently than they did. You have different um, communication skills. You have different love languages. All of these are things that God created in this person. And all of them are available for you to irritate you. And depending on how you respond to them, it's going to be trouble. Because what you're saying when you say to this person, I want you to change that, is you're asking them to change the way they were raised. That's not going to happen. You're asking them to change their personality, which they didn't even choose. God gave it to them. You're asking them to choose something that's deeply seated in them that God was behind. And as much as they might love you and try to change, they are who they are. And when you expect that, you're expecting too much. Now, let's just, I'm, we're going to get somewhere. Researchers have also followed married couples around. And they've counted the number of arguments that a couples have had. And they've assigned percentages to the type of conflicts that you have with each other. Um, let's go ahead and put that screen up. How many of the conflicts do you think you have that are solvable? How many do you think are unsolvable? Get two numbers in your head. Tell the people next to you. This is what I think it is. This is what I think it is. So say it out loud. What do you think it is? How many are solvable? How many unsolvable? Okay, here we go. Researchers found, boop. Oh, oh, that's exactly what I said. Oh, I said, oh, this explains a lot. Because it seems like the conflicts that Tracy and I were having were happening over and over and over again. And then the light went off. Oh, my word. I might have to deal with this for the rest of my life. And then the researcher said, there's only one way to deal with this. You have to learn to live with it. What? Listen, this is harder than it seems, right? Because that idea that we were talking about with time, I'm living that with my wife. I grew up believing that if you were five minutes early, you were probably late. And my wife thinks, if you show up on time, you're rude. I don't even understand the con I don't get it. Like, what do you mean rude? Well, you're being there right on time. you got to give people space, time to get things ready. And they're a little behind. Just give them a break. No. And we would, we would be at each other over this stuff. And to realize that I would have to live with it said to me, I have to live with a level of disrespect because that's how I saw it. And part of the reason it made me nervous that I might have to live with this for the rest of my life is because I've been around enough couples who've ended up in divorce, and over and over and over again, what I've heard them say is, I don't have to put up with this any longer. I'm not going to live with this for the rest of my life. But here's some bad news. Some, some things you shouldn't live with. I'm with you on that. But I'm just telling you right now, 
there's a chunk of differences that you have with the other person that you will have to put up with for the rest of your life. Tracy and I have been married almost 30 years. We've had the same arguments for 30 years. And we have realized we will have them for the next 20. And if we don't want our relationship defined by those, if we don't want to be in a perpetual state of conflict with each other over stuff that we already know we're different on, then we've got to find a different solution. We've got to find a different way. See, I understand. I, I have loved her enough to hear Tracy explain the story behind why she's late. So I understand it. I hate it still. It, it drives me nuts. But here's what's happened. We both decided that if we were going to survive and not have those things define our life, that we were going to have to invite God into the midst of this. And our choice was going to be this. We decided that we were going to honor God first, which meant that I accepted that God did not make a mistake when she went through all of those experiences that shaped her. It was not an error that caused her to get to a place where she wants to be late all the time. It's not an error for her personality to be radically different than mine. It's not an error for her communication style to be a constant on while mine is on a constant off. It's not a mistake. And if I want to choose to honor God, I'm going to accept that even when it's irritating to me. And instead, instead of harping on her about it, I'm going to talk to God. And I found that as I've done that, God's listened to me. God's convicted me. He's comforted me at times. And at times he has said, shut it, Blair. Shut up. You're asking her to be somebody I made her to be. Like, I made her this way. You're asking it to change? What are you doing? I just want you to be quiet. Listen, we still argue about the same stuff. We just apologize a lot faster. We repair things quickly because it's an attempt to honor God with the differences. That I, I know you're different. I'm different. God didn't make a mistake with you. And if I want to honor what he's doing in this relationship, I'll honor you for being this unique person that you are. And God's shape that he created you in is something I'll respect. And as we both found our way to a place where we decided to honor God first for the created being that he put us with, it's taken out the angst. It's removed the explosive fights. Not perfect, not suggesting that. We're still going to have the same fights for 20 more years. I'm hoping to win. I know it's not going to happen, right? But I'm going to honor God first. Uh, another way that we found that as we've invited God into our relationship that's made a difference is I've talked to you the last three weeks about what God says about what makes marriage healthy and strong. Love, respect, and serving. 
And what's happened is as we've decided to invite God into our relationship, he's already spoken about it. He said, listen, if you want to do the right thing, why don't you grow your love for your wife? Why don't you pay attention to the respect that you give her? Why don't you find ways to serve? You might feel like you're out in the wilderness, but you're not. I'm right with you, and I've already told you what you need to know. So if you could just spend your time doing that, you'd be surprised at how she would respond in this relationship. And the presence of God in our marriage has started reshaping and refocusing where we spend our energy and our time. And there's effort to serve. There's effort to grow our love. There's effort to show each other respect. And it makes a difference. I'm telling you right now, um, I don't know. I don't know if without that, where we would be right now. The commonality that we have in deciding to love Jesus and follow him has transformed our ability to be with each other, and we are radically different. But because we can honor God, we can listen to his instruction, it's reshaping us. I don't know if you feel like you're in the wilderness right now. Like you're just trying to survive the relationship. You feel alone, you feel lost. I want you to know the truth. You're not. See, from the beginning of time, God knew that we would have trouble keeping our commitments to each other, that we would say, I love you, I cherish you, I'm going to be committed to you, but we would fail. And he planned all along to walk alongside you and to help you repair those relationships, to help you encourage to do the right thing. He, it's, it's been his plan the whole time. You are not alone. But a big mistake you can make is to not give God the time that's required for you to have a relationship with him where you can invite him into the relationship. I listen to God. If you're not spending time listening, you're not giving him your best. And if he just gets the rest of you, there's a chance that you're not going to be able to use the most important resource that you could possibly use in your relationship, and that's God reshaping and redirecting who you are inside that relationship for the sake of we, of us. Like I said, I don't know where you're at, but what I want to do for the next 30 seconds is just give God a chance to speak with you. I'm going to ask you to just... Um, Put your heads down and close your eyes, and we're going to just be quiet for about 30 seconds. And I want you to uh, give God an opportunity just to say what he has to say to you. He might ask you for an adjustment. He might say, listen, I really need you to find a, a way to start giving me more time because I need the best of you so that I can help you. Maybe some of you are just feeling lost and alone, and you're out in the wilderness, and maybe you need to hear the words of God say, you're not, I'm with you. I never left. I've got your back. And maybe others of you just need to hear God's voice say, you know what? I would help you. Here's my help. I need you to make this adjustment in your relationship. So I'm going to give you just 30 seconds. Listen carefully because God will speak.
God, I find it incredible. In the very opening chapters of the scriptures, you found a way to say you get us, you understand us, that we're going to have these commitments to you, we're going to have these commitments to each other, have these commitments to our families and spouses, and we're going to fail. And you know it, but you love us. And you've staked your life on being committed to helping us fulfill our commitments. God, we thank you for that beautiful gift. I ask that you would give us the courage to lean in, to give you the time that you deserve in our lives, that you're not getting the spare change, the leftovers, that you're not getting the rest of us, you're getting the best. And by so doing, you enter into our relationships, you help us honor, you help us listen and follow your instruction, and our relationships become what they were meant to be. God, we ask for that help, and we thank you for the love that we see and feel from you. In Jesus' name, amen.